On October 16, 2017, more than 100 progressive investors joined forces with the International Club of Rome and the Aquil Group to launch the investment turnaround, the investment vendor. We believe that we can all look into a bright and exciting future because we can reinvent ourselves and make our financial, business and economic systems integrally sustainable. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world leaders and role models who are already on this path and who can guide us with their advice and wisdom. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews John Perkins, author of the New York Times bestseller, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. My life's being threatened. My daughter's life's being threatened by people I take very seriously because two of my clients have been assassinated. So corporations really uh, control most governments around the world. They have the power, but we, the people, have the power of a corporation as consumers, as investors. The updated edition, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, is available now. Welcome. John, thank you so very much for being here. It's my pleasure, Mariana, to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, your willingness to open up again and go back into the past a couple of years ago. Why did you write this book? Um, you know, what is an economic hitman? My title was chief economist at a major international consulting firm in the United States. We called ourselves economic hitmen because really our job was to identify countries with resources our corporations want, like oil arrange huge loans to that country from the World Bank or Wall Street or similar organizations. But the money would never actually go to the country. It would go to our own corporations uh, to build big infrastructure projects like power plants and industrial parks and highways in the country. So our companies would make a lot of money uh, from the projects. And a few wealthy people in the country would benefit. The people who owned industries, who owned commercial establishments, the, the, the leading families, they would benefit from the electricity or the highways, etc. But the majority of the people would suffer because uh, money would be diverted from paying for education, health care, and other social services in order to pay off the interest on the loans. In the end, uh, the principal would not could not be paid. And so we'd go back and say, since you can't pay your debts, sell your resource, real treat to our corporations without environmental and social regulations, or vote with us on the next the United Nations vote against Cuba or something like that, or, or let us build a military base on your soil. So it was really a process of creating an empire, a, a global empire, a corporate empire, um, without, for the most part, until fairly recently, again, without the, without the military. And in the few cases where we failed, where, where the heads of these countries would not buy into these deals, uh, people we call the jackals would go in and either overthrow governments or sometimes assassinate the leaders. So I, I really wrote the book after 9-11 uh, because I felt that that information needed to get out there. The world needed to know uh, what I had done and how this whole system operates. And incidentally, I updated it with the new confessions of an economic hitman just last year because I, I felt that things have changed so radically in the 12 years since the original book was written, things have gotten worse. Uh, the system was so successful in, in what we call third world countries that it came back and, and hit people in Europe and in the United States. Uh, and also in, in the new book, I, practically everything that's in the old book is also in the new book. In addition, there's 15 chapters that talk about what we need to do to turn this around, and that includes the very things 
that you are advocating in investment opportunities? I mean, it's not easy, you know, to come up and uh, tell the truth uh, to the world, you know, because you're going against all those interests that you just lined out, you know, on creating dependency and uh, building an empire. Why? What made you make that move? After I stopped being a, an economic hitman, chief economist, after I re- retired, resigned from that job, realizing that, that what was wrong with the system, because during the first years, I, I thought it was the correct thing to do. We were taught in business school. The World Bank advocates that the way to help poor countries is to invest heavily in infrastructure. And statistically, you can show that this is true. When you invest heavily in this infrastructure projects, the GDP, the gross domestic product, it generally increases significantly. But over time, I began to see that that was only because a few rich people, families were getting much richer in these countries, and the statistics were all skewed in their favor. Uh, So eventually, after 10 years of that job, I quit, and I started writing a book to expose the system, and it was written as an expose. So I contacted other people who had jobs similar to mine, and immediately I get threatening phone calls. Uh, anonymous phone calls, certainly my life and my young daughter, had, and she was an infant at the time. And very shortly after the phone calls came in, I got invited out to dinner by the president of Stone and Webster, a company that had competed with mine, a big, big company in Boston. The president took me out to dinner and said, you know, you've got a great resume. You were chief economist of one of our competitors. We'd like to use your resume and proposals. You won't have to do much work for us. Just let us use your resume and I'm prepared to write you a check for half a million dollars as a consultant's retainer. Just don't write the book. So, my life's being threatened, my daughter's life's being threatened by people I take very seriously because two of my clients have been assassinated, the president of Ecuador and the head of state of Panama. And I'm also being offered a bribe. It's a totally legal bribe, consultant's retainer, but it was an obvious bribe not to write the book. And I took the money. Uh, And I have to say in my own self-defense that I didn't go out and buy a huge mansion or fancy cars. I I reinvested the money into a basically new career, which would take me back to the Amazon, where I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer, and tell the people there, the indigenous people, that I wanted to help them save their rainforests. And I ended up developing a partnership, a couple of nonprofits, Dream Change and the the Pachamama Alliance, two nonprofits continue to be very successful at helping these people. And I wrote five books uh, on shamanism and indigenous people, Shapeshifting the World is As Your Dream at Psychonavigation and a couple of others, which was okay with Stone and Webster. But I didn't write the the book. And then on 9-11, I was in the Amazon taking a group of people to study with the Schwa people there, indigenous people who know about protecting the environment. Uh, After I came home, I flew up to to ground zero. And as I stood there looking at that smoldering pit, I I knew I had to write the book. But I wrote it as a confession, totally personal, private. I didn't contact anybody else. I I wrote it in secret. And I wrote the whole manuscript and then figuring that once I got it in the hands of a very good New York literary agent, it would be my insurance policy because people would know that to kill me would sell books. I'd be a martyr and books would sell. So I delayed this for a very long time and then finally after 9-11 started writing it and it was published in 2004. But that was not the end of the story, right? Your life was still threatened, wasn't it? Well, actually I was poisoned. <laughs> so, 
So early 2005, the book came out in November 2004. A couple of months later, I'm flying up to New York to speak at the United Nations. And uh, that night, I got rushed to the hospital, uh, and I lost a, a little over half the blood in my body very, very quickly, internal bleeding. I was rushed to Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, and, and uh, what ended up happening was 70% of my large intestine was removed. Um, I, we never could prove it absolutely, but I'm quite convinced, as is just about everybody else, that I was poisoned. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence around that. That I've been resisting meeting with a freelance journalist who didn't have very particularly exciting credentials. I was doing a lot of interviews in those days. I had a, a, a publicist who was setting things up. And, but this fellow finally convinced us that when I flew into New York, landed at LaGuardia Airport, he would pick me up, take me out to lunch, and then take me to my friend's house where I was spending the night before speaking at the United Nations the next day. It seemed like a better deal than taking a taxi. So I did it. And, you know, as I look back, I, I you know, during lunch, I, I got up and went to the restroom and food was on the table. Um, and it was very shortly after that that I started, I had this horrendous attack uh, on, my, on my intestines. And I had just had a colonoscopy uh, several months before that, which essentially gave me a clean bill of health. Um, so it was very, very suspicious. And this person, essentially after that, we couldn't contact him. Um, it wasn't until after the operation had been performed. It was, an, you know, it was a pretty serious situation. I was in t terrible pain, and, and and the doctor told me that if I didn't get to a hospital within a, in a couple of hours, uh, I, I would be dead when I called him from my friend's house. And uh, so we didn't really think much about what was going on. We just get, get, get it over with. And once the operation was done um, and the news got out, I began to get a lot of emails, as did Pachamama Alliance, as did my publicist and my publisher, suggesting that I'd probably been poisoned. And as we looked into this and talked to the doctor, and he said, oh, it's entirely possible, he, but the uh, colon had been had been incinerated, so there's no way to there was no way to examine it. So it's, the evidence is circumstantial, and I have to say, Mariana, that I think that assuming that that person did do it, um, I don't believe that he he was a government agent. I don't think he was CIA or NSA or anything, because I I think they're they're smart enough to do a better job first of all, and second of all, uh, to know that. It would sell lots of books, which it did. Once <laughs> the information got out that I'd probably been poisoned, book sales went up. Um, so I suspect that he was probably a fanatic who didn't like what I wrote about or didn't like that I'd been a whistleblower or didn't like what I'd done. And, you know, we know these days it's constant news of people who, whose neighbors say they're totally normal, uh, you know, pacifistic people, peaceful people who suddenly take up a gun and go into a school and sh start shooting kids or shoot out windows at people out on the street or whatever. So there's a lot of people out there that aren't at all what they appear to be. And I, I suspect that this fellow was one of those, although I, I really don't know. You continued writing uh, three other books on, on similar topics, um, yeah. like A Game as Old as the Empire and... Um, um, and the secret history of the American Empire both appeared in 2007, and then in 2009 you wrote Hoodwinked, uh, 
um, an economic hitman reveals why the world financial markets imploded and what we need to do to remake them. So uh, can you, and I all encourage everyone to uh, listening to this podcast to, um, to buy those books uh, and, and, uh, you know, comment on them, you know, uh, on Amazon, uh, how wonderful they are and what they liked about them. What I would like to um, ask you next is what is exactly that, you think we need to do to remake these failing systems? Because obviously, you know, yeah. they failed us. Yeah. Well, and actually the, the, the most recent book, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, goes into a lot of detail. And really I'd suggest to people if they're going to pick one book, that would be the one. It, it has most of the things that the original Confessions had in there. But it also updates it and, and provides, like I think I mentioned, 15 chapters with a strategy for change. So there's a lot of detail in there about things that we all can do to change the system. But I, I think the – so that would be the book I'd encourage people to read, The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It's been out about a year. Um, but you know, I think what we need to understand – and what people are beginning more and more to understand is that we've created a, a, a global political, social, economic system that's totally failing us. And I call it a death economy. It's an economic system that's built to a large degree on, on war or the threat of war, uh, but also it's built on d destroying the earth, uh, killing the earth, killing the very resources upon which that economy itself depends. Uh, and it's brought us miracles, uh, incredible technology, uh, communications, transportation, healthcare networks. Uh, the fact that you and I are having this conversation uh, is pretty amazing. But it's gone too far. And we all are beginning to recognize this. The glaciers are melting, the oceans are rising, species are going extinct. We're, 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 we seem to be in constant warfare around the world. So we've taken it too far. And we need to turn it around. And basically all the problems that we're looking at today, whether it's global climate change or world hunger or the threat of nuclear holocaust, terrorism, almost all of these things are symptoms of the system that just plain isn't working. They are not the problems. They are problems, but they are symptomatic problems. And we could cure each of those problems and still have the overall problem. So what we need to do is create a new system, and I call, call it a life economy, and many economists are buying into this now and calling it that. So it's an economic system that will clean up pollution, uh, pay companies that are currently making missiles and, and weapons of destruction to instead make equipment that will mine the plastic in the oceans and clean up all the oil spills around the world and so on and so forth. And that also will regenerate destroyed environments, replant forests, uh, uh, recover terrible destroyed mountains that have been mined and blown up and, and so on. And new technologies that recycle, uh, that use the sun in ways we haven't even envisioned yet and, and create energy out of air and water and so forth. Uh, in other words, technologies that recognize that we've got all the resources mined from the earth that we need. Uh, we can recycle, we can reuse, we can use new, new, new methods, we can follow the, the example of the plants, if you want, with photosynthesis. There's so many opportunities here to build a whole new economic system. And it's not just economic, it's political, social, they all kind of tie in together. So, you know, and what you're talking about with investors, what we're talking about with consumer movements. So corporations really uh, control most governments around the world. 
Um, and they have the power, but we, the people, have the power over corporations as consumers, as investors, as managers and workers and owners, whatever our role is, we have the power. And so we must bring about this change. And it's, I think it's a very, very exciting time. This is not, this, this, we don't have to look at this as doom and gloom that we're going to have to totally change everything in our lifestyles and go and live in caves. No, we look at this as a tremendous opportunity to develop new areas uh, where we can actually grow, but grow in terms of cleaning up the environment, regenerating destroyed systems, and coming up with new technologies. Very exciting time. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the, uh, now that you have um, had close insight into how investments are being done and businesses are being developed, uh, how what are the recommendations that you would make to us who are interested in uh, going into private-public partnerships, for instance, with, the, with governments, with um, other organizations, with NGOs? Are there particular... Um, Things you would like to be us to be aware of or pay attention to, things that we should do, should not do, organizations that we should uh, partner up with? Well, I think the guiding principle should always be, are we supporting things that will take us toward a life economy? And that is an economic system that is itself a renewable resource. It's an economic system that does not base itself on militarization of any sort. It does not base itself on, on destroying resources. It bases itself on cleaning up pollution and regenerating destroyed environments and uh, recycling and, and, and coming up with new technologies. So that should be the guiding principle. And, and, and it is not about profit maximization. So part of this problem really comes out of an escalation that occurred in 1976. We can, we can put a moment, we can put an exact minute on, on when the, the problem really began to escalate, and it's when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in Economics. And his most important statement, most significant one, runs something like this, that the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term shareholder profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. I'm paraphrasing, but that's in essence the statement. And that has determined the goals of business ever since. And in fact, it, it, it appears to give CEOs license, many would say a mandate, to do whatever they think it takes to maximize profits, including corrupting politicians, destroying the very resources upon which their long-term business is dependent, and uh, destroying the environment. And, and that's a it's a terrible way to look at what success means. We need to turn that around and say that the successful businesses of the future, which is right now, and successful individuals will be those who contribute to a public interest, contribute to creating a life economy. And yes, we should pay investors a good, decent rate of return, but that money should be invested only in things that lead to a life economy, that serve a public interest. And the public is all of us and, and, all, and the whole planet, in fact, all species. So, so that should be the driving force. And, you know, whether people decide to invest in in, in hard technologies or in services or in retail goods, whatever it is, let the driving force behind that be that the goal is to serve a public interest in the long term and to create a life economic system. We're applying Ken Wilber's integral model to make exactly those assessments because obviously what you're saying is 
we should only get aligned with the people who have a world-centric view of the world and not an egocentric or even ethnocentric view of the world, where we all see the, the, the earth as our home and not our, um, you know, for-profit interest and short-term interest. The question is also, how do I identify those? How do you, um, you know, obviously, how do you become um, a person at a later stage of, of uh, consciousness, human development. And that's the um, where the rubber meets the road in our view. If, you know, the people that we're engaging with in investments and in building companies are people who are not egocentric. Um, they are people who look, uh, have a multi-perspectival view of the world look at the planet as a whole and not just, you know, my um, quarterly reports. Well, yeah, and I, I think we, we maybe need to be a little bit careful here because if we can redefine the goal of business uh, to uh, serve a public interest, to create a life economy, and we also redefine our own goals, personal goals, as not being to maximize material Wealth, but to maximize also the way that we serve future, we serve ourselves and future generations from a holistic standpoint. Um, we leave a lot of room in here for CEOs that we may find detestable, who maybe they're, they're sociopaths, but sociopaths are driven by success. And if success is defined as maximizing profits, that's what they'll try to do. And if success is, if personal success is measured by how much, what your salary is or what, what, what your bonuses are every year, if you're $10, $10, million, $10 million means you're more successful than the guy who gets $8 million, then that's what they'll strive for. But if we redefine success as being creating organizations and personal lifestyles that support a life economy, that take us toward a public interest, then those sociopaths will move into that area too. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a mixed bag here. Yes, you want to start perhaps by looking at those individuals, entrepreneurs, business executives that are committed to doing the right thing. But in the end, what we need to do is really change our definition of what it means to be successful as human beings, as being human on this planet and, and being integrated with a global as well as a local economic system. And let me let me take that just a little bit further. I I, I spent a lot of time meeting with very high powered executives. And I was just speaking at the St. Petersburg Russia International Economic Forum, where there are five Fortune 500 CEOs. Putin was on the stage, same stage as me, and Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the United Nations. A lot of very impressive people, Nobel laureates, etc. And I do. I spend a lot of time at other conferences like that, and I hear from CEO after CEO that they are human beings. They've got children. They've got grandchildren. They want to make a better world, but they're afraid that if they lose half a percentage of market share, they'll be fired, and the next person will only care about uh, market share. And so they, they say they they have to be very careful that where they go. But what they say is. Please encourage investors and consumers to send us emails, to send us to organize consumer campaigns, social networking ones that will give us a hundred thousand messages that we must change, and then we can take those messages to our, our primary stockholders and say, "Hey, these are our 
These are our customers. These are our investors. We've got to listen to them, or we're going to go the way of Woolworths and the Shopper Image and Eastern Airlines and Kodak and Polaroid and so many other huge companies that we once thought were invincible uh, that no longer exist. And the chief executive officers are very, very aware of the extreme vulnerable positions that they are in. I totally agree with you. The question is, how can we redefine what it means to be a human being, as you say, on this planet and connect with these people so that they get the message? I guess, um, you know, what we're talking about, the the road to exterior transformation always leads within. So people need to have a personal stake in you know, an interest in redefining what success means so that they are willing to go there rather than, uh, you know, us telling them. So they have to have an intrinsic um, interest. The question is, how can we help them see that? How can we, because, you know, these are already powerful people and it takes time for them to see that at the end of the day, they won't be able to drink uh, or eat or breathe money once, you know, the Ocean levels have risen to, you know, two or three or four meters or even higher, and uh, water is scarce and so on. So how can we help these people see in the in the future so that that's where I see the, the basic difference. So as investor, I can, you know, if I come in and say, well, we need a, a more integral way of looking at the, uh, you know, and, and building our system and building the organizations that we, we are investing in, then I can choose people who are already at that level. So I don't need to get them to transform. The question is, how can we help big corporations and their CEOs move in that direction? Like Volkswagen, for instance, you know, they, they knew that they were not supposed to do what they're doing, but they still did it. Well, we, it's, it's a matter of telling the new story, of redefining what it means to be successful. When I went to business school before 1976, I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for investors. We used to call that blue chip stocks. And, um, but he also takes good care of his employees and gives them retirement pensions and health insurance and takes good care of the local community that not only pays taxes but also uh, invests money in the local school systems and recreational facilities. He's a good citizen, takes good care of the communities where his corporation works. I was taught that in business school. That all changed in 1976, and it had been building up toward that when von Hayek won the Nobel Prize of, in economics in 74. He, he was stating something similar, but Milton Friedman really hit a chord, and then Ronald Reagan bought into it, and Margaret Thatcher, and world leaders around the world bought into this and have ever since. So a new story emerged that everybody bought into quite quickly, and it shows the power of perception. Human, human beings determine objective reality, what goes on in the earth, what goes on in the world through their perception of reality. And suddenly the perception of reality changed. And business schools, instead of teaching that a good CEO is a, is a good citizen as well as paying a decent rate of return, they're now being taught, no, you don't have to be a good citizen. All you got to do is maximize short-term shareholder profits. That's all you got to do. And that's been the watchword ever since. So we need to turn that around. I mean, it's, it's uh, to me, it's you know, it's 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 a it's a question of perception. It's a question of selling a new story. How do we get that word out there? Uh, you know, can you, Mariana, become the next Nobel 
the winner of the Nobel Prize in economics and, and, and get that point across? I don't know. I don't know. But I think what, 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 we all, what we all can do is keep sending this message, this story. So whenever you make investments in, in corporations or anything else of that matter, send them the story about we're, we're creating a life economy. You've got to serve a public interest. Yeah, that's what uh, we do. That's what the investment vendor is, do, is, is, is not set out to do, exactly to integrate people, planet, and profit. I mean, financial sustainability, profit is a, is a, a negative word in the meantime, but uh, what I would like to call is fi financial sustainability uh, alongside uh, you know, people and the planet and also purpose and, and passion, personal passion and joy and happiness, and that you know, at parity with one another. I think this is what we stand for. Um, but I also uh, know that uh, when we invest, we cho always choose people who are already there that we don't need to educate first. Because education, as we know, in human takes a long time. Well, wait a minute. I, 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 just, I don't think education in humans takes a long time. I think in 1976, things turned around hugely. When Copernicus uh, proved that the, that the Earth revolved around the sun instead of vice versa, in, in one year, everything changed. People's view of religion, everything changed. Uh, we, we see many times in history, I can look at the American history in, 19, in 1774, the whole United, what became the United States, America believed that the British were invincible. George Washington stood in one minute, stood in front of the Continental Congress and said, no, 20 years ago during the French and Indian War at the Battle of Monongahela, I saw a huge British army terribly defeated by a small handful of Indians. All we got to do is hide behind trees. That moment changed everything. We, we, we can go throughout history and see that. I don't think re-educating human beings has to take a long time. It depends on the message that gets across, and it depends on where you use the leverage points. So if you can bring Nike around to, to being committed to a life economy, then all the other companies that are much – Nike's got 50% of the market, then everybody else in that marketplace is going to have to come around. So if you can bring if you can bring Mark Parker, who's president of Nike, Nike around, you, you've you've created a huge change, and he wants to come around, and he's he's told me, you know, get get start a consumer campaign that that sends me lots of emails saying I love your products, Nike, but I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage. And he says, if I, if I get 100,000 of those emails, I can take them to Phil Knight, the major stockholder, and, and the other major stockholders, and, and use those to convince them that we've got to change our ways. And if Nike changes its ways, then everybody else in that industry is going to have to change their ways, too. And, um, you know, I'm very hopeful you said that, uh, you know, to look at Macron and what he did, you know, just last week. In uh, you know, in, in helping people divert their investments from uh, from fuel uh, fuel based economy to a, a sustainable economy, and uh, also um, it seems that Vladimir Putin is also um, moving in the right direction, and of course the Chinese. So I was extremely impressed with Putin at the uh, Saint Petersburg Economic Forum, where, where when he where, where he and I were both speaking and. Um, I, 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 when I say talk about this very much in the United States, I often get a knee-jerk reaction. How can you possibly defend Putin? But Putin made a very strong point of, he said, do the Russians spy on the Americans? Yes. Do the Americans spy on the Russians? Yes. But that's an old story. We need to change it. And we all need to understand that we've got five problems that we are all are facing, Chinese, Germans, 
uh, Russians, Americans, Brazilians, Indians. Those five problems are climate change or global climate change, income inequality, uh, the, the possibility of nuclear holocaust, uh, terrorism, and cybersecurity. And he said, you know, we all, this is what we have to focus on now is, 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 is fixing these problems. Now, when a guy like Putin starts to say this, if we also had, you know, if the president of the United States saying that instead of saying the opposite, <laughs> that would go a long way. And, and, uh, and to have uh, the, the German government and, and, you know, to get this message out there, things can change very quickly when enough people buy into a new perception of what it means to be successful. And that's what this is all about. We're talking about what, what, how do we measure success? Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for your advice So, um, on how to move from a death economy that we've created in the middle of uh, toward a life economy and um, uh, to empower uh, people by uh, telling them a different story and encouraging them to move in this direction, um, all because uh, they actually are going to realize that they're making more money if they are more sustainable in terms of the social and environmental impact than uh, before. Well, likewise. Thanks, Marianne. Keep up your great work. It's so important that you move forward in this field. And I think as, you know, being as a group of investors, you have amazing leverage, much more than perhaps you even realize. It's an honor to know you and have you around. And I encourage everyone to go out and, and buy your uh, new, um, new book. And then new confessions and uh, read it and comment uh, online and help us all get a better story out there for encouraging to the building of a life economy. Thank you, Marianne. And I'd, I'd also encourage people to go to my website, johnperkins.org, sign up for the monthly newsletter that continues to delve into exactly these issues. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more on the mentioned website and get the book. Write to us, give us your feedback, and tell us whose ideas you want to hear next. Keep an eye out for the next podcast to learn more exciting possibilities coming up in the future of investing, business, and economics. This is The Investment Turnaround.